Let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. I thank you, God, that you have worked mightily in so many people's lives. God, that you have shown them the depth of their sin and the reality of the gospel. God, that you have moved in our hearts and stirred us to reach out, to to cry out to you, to cry out to your son Jesus, and, and to say, save us from our sin, to trust not in ourselves, but instead in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, I thank You for the grace that You have given us. And I pray for an extra measure of it now. God, I pray that You would just help us to be mindful of the Gospel. God, that You would illumine Your Word this morning. God, that You would help us to not only be hearers of the Word, but also doers of the Word. That You would work mightily in our midst to transform us, to mold us, and make us into the image of Your Son. For it's in His name that we pray this morning. Amen. So we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians. We've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians and we're getting close to the end. We're drawing to a close. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. We're going to jump right in. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. Paul writes this, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses." For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me. So Paul continues in today's text right where he left off, left off in chapter 11. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's do a quick review Remember last week we saw Paul contrast the folly of boasting in the flesh, the foolishness of boasting in the flesh, with the wisdom of boasting in one's weaknesses. And throughout the latter part of this this letter, Paul has spent a great deal of time and energy rebuking the Corinthian believers for not only tolerating, but also admiring those who boast in the flesh. There were those who boasted in the flesh. They boasted in their human abilities. And Paul says, you not only, you not only tolerate them, you admire them. 
You put up with them. You tolerate their abuse even. In 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 16, he said, Again, I say to you, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I may boast a little. What I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. In other words, I'm going to boast. If it's boasting you want, I'll boast. This isn't what the Lord would do, but I'll boast to show you how foolish this is. He says, since many boast, verse 18, according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, and here's a sarcasm, for you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, says Paul, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. Paul says, if that's the sign of strength, then I must say that I have been weak by comparison. You're tolerating these people who are devouring you. They're taking advantage of you. They're exalting themselves. And they're humiliating you by leading you away from the Gospel. And Paul was saying, I don't want to be viewed as foolish because boasting is indeed foolish. But if it's bragging you want, let me boast. Let me brag. Only I'll not brag in my strength. I'll not boast in my strength, but instead in my weakness. I'll boast not in myself, but instead in the Lord. So he goes on to show them first the folly of boasting in one's religious credentials. Remember, he said that just as they were Hebrews and Israelites and descendants of Abraham, so was he. He says, you are these things and so am I but he considered it all rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. And second, he confronted the folly of boasting not only in their religious credentials, but also in their religious accomplishments. He says, as a servant of Christ, my resume looks much different from those who are presenting their own resume. He says, my resume, that is my list of accomplishments, looks like this. It looks like labors imprisonments, beatings, and being in danger of death. You see, Paul refuses to point to his accomplishments as an apostle. Although he led people to Christ, he planted churches, he raised up up leaders, he wrote a large part of the, the New Testament, but he refuses to point to those things because he knows that those accomplishments are not really his. They're instead God's accomplishments. And Paul knows that he's just a servant, or but a servant. And therefore, the only boasting he's going to do is not with regard to his strength, but with regard to the work that God has done in and through his own weakness. So last week we saw how Paul showed the foolishness of boasting in one's religious credentials and the foolishness of boasting in one's religious accomplishments. And now we turn to today's text, where he's about to show them the foolishness of boasting in one's religious experiences. So we saw one's boasting in one's religious credentials, we saw boasting in one's religious accomplishments, and now we look at boasting in one's religious experiences. That's why in verse 1 he says, Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying that he will continue this foolishness of boasting, but this time with regard to visions and revelations, And he's going to do so so that they will see just how unprofitable of a venture this is. 
You know, the church and its struggle with false teachers today is really not all that different from what we read in 2 Corinthians. That just as false teachers were preaching a false gospel and leading the Corinthian believers away from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ, so also false teachers are doing the same thing some 2,000 years later today. In fact, I was struck this week as I read 2 Corinthians again and again and again, and the more I read this book, the more convinced I am that it is supremely important for us to understand today. In fact, I don't think you should turn on Christian television without 2 Corinthians open. Because it is supremely important as we measure and weigh the teaching that comes our way. You probably shouldn't turn on Christian radio without having 2 Corinthians open. Because it addresses false teachers, and false teachers were prevalent in Paul's day, and they're prevalent in our day. You see, the false teachers of Paul's day, they were touting their credentials. They were touting their accomplishments. And they were touting their experiences. And the false teachers of today, they're really doing the very same thing. Many false teachers tout their religious credentials. Even claiming to be modern day prophets. And modern day apostles. They even use the title prophet and the title apostle. And they say that they're able to speak for God with authority. You know, I stand up here week after week and I speak for God with authority, but only so much as it comes from this book. The only perfect part of any message that I preach is when I'm reading the actual Scriptures. I don't speak with authority otherwise. I point to the one that has the authority. I point to the words of Scripture that are the authority. And I pray that I would interpret and present them clearly. But I'm not the one with authority. I don't call myself the Apostle Jason Pauley. Or the Prophet Jason Pauley. And many false teachers today do that very thing, touting their religious credentials. Secondly, many false teachers today tout their religious accomplishments. They claim they've been given the the ability to perform miraculous healings and impart spiritual power in people's lives. Not that long ago, I got a letter from a church in this area. And this letter said, come to our event on such and such a time because brother so-and-so from such and such a place is coming. And he's going to be able to impart spiritual power Come and be healed because He's been given this special gift of God whereby He will impart power into your life. Whereby He will heal you from every sickness and illness. Brother so-and-so went on to say has done this in such and such a place and such and such a place. He's worldwide known. He's done this to millions of people. And all you need to do is come and believe. And the letter was touting this man's religious accomplishments and his religious credentials. Brother so-and-so was an apostle and a prophet. So many false teachers today tout their religious credentials and their religious accomplishments. But many false teachers today also tout their religious experiences. They claim to have been taken up to heaven and or been given special revelations and prophetic visions. And thus they urge others to come and experience the power of God. 
This letter encouraged everyone, all of the readers, to come and experience God's power. I'm not saying we don't experience God's power in church. We experience God's power day by day. I pray that we experience God's power even in this service. But do you know when I'm convinced someone has experienced the power of God? It's not when they say things like, I just know God touched me. Or, I could just feel it. Or, there was this warm feeling inside of me. I say, well, that, that could have been a hot flash. I, I don't... Uh, like. Or when they say, I just saw Jesus standing there. I, I looked up and Jesus was right in front of me. No, uh, that's not convincing proof to me that someone has experienced the power of God. Instead, it's when they love and pray for their husband. Right? Their husband or their wife. When they pray for their husband even though he's a jerk. And they love their husband and care for him. And, and pray for him. And treat him with respect even though he's not respectable. That's the power of God. The power of God is when a, a husband loves his wife even though the secretary at work is 20 years younger and 50 pounds lighter. That's love. And He washes her with the water of the Word. I'm convinced that people have come to experience the power of God not when they share some emotional experience, but when they share the Gospel with their family. When they share the Gospel with their friends. When they share the Gospel with their neighbors and the people at work. You see, you don't need to look far to see people boasting about their religious credentials, their religious accomplishments, and their religious experiences. And they offer up the opportunity for others to do the same. In fact, just last night, I saw an ad for an event. It was on a Christian website, and there was an event coming up. It's taking place tonight in Orlando, Florida. From 5.30 to 8.30, if any of you uh, feel the need to fly to, Florida, to Orlando tonight, it was at the Center for Revival and Healing at the Hilton Orlando. So it's, a, it's at a hotel, but it's the Center for Revival and Healing. And it said the Center for Revival and Healing with Holy Spirit outpouring of signs and wonders and miracles and power. Come and experience a mighty outpouring in Florida. Bring the sick and the hungry for a move of God. The heavens will be opened, it promised. And the prophetic mantle will be released upon all. The website goes on and says, this person, this person leading this event and giving the lectures, he's traveled around the world giving lectures, ministering in churches, and celebrating massive crusades of miracles where thousands of people gather to experience the presence and the power of God. Catholics and people of all faiths gather by the thousands to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has had an opportunity to pray for presidents, prime ministers, and government officials around the world, often revealing secrets in their hearts through prophetic ministry and bringing direction to their lives. goes on and says, God is raising this young man, anointed by God with powerful prophetic ministry and miracles and a unique sensitivity to the movement of the Holy Spirit. Know the voice of God and minister with authority, bringing liberation and hope to all parts of the world. He received his mighty healing ministry after the Lord's visit in Argentina where Jesus appeared to him in a vision and put his hand on his head and activated his ministry. And it goes on and says, tens of thousands of people around the world have been healed and released. Blind people have received their sight. Deaf people have begun to hear. Thousands of cripples have been healed. Goes on and says he had an encounter with God. 
that he was caught by the Lord for six hours and he experienced the presence and glory of God. And now he's a prophet and an evangelist with a miraculous ministry of biblical proportions. And as I read this, I'm telling you I was sick to my stomach. Because if that's not touting one's religious credentials, this prophet, this apostle, if it's not touting one's religious accomplishments and one's religious experience, then I'm not sure what is. And I thought, this flies in the face of what 2 Corinthians 12 is teaching. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to be harsh, but it's my responsibility to warn you that this stuff is out there. Do you know what? It's closer than Orlando, Florida. Because that letter that I received was from a church in Thomaston, Maine. And it's the kind of trash that I think Paul was dealing with in Corinth. Just compare and contrast the resume that I just read of this man with Paul's resume in 2 Corinthians 11. Starting in verse 23. This is Paul's resume. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I far more, I more so, in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was spent in the deep, I've been on frequent journeys, dangers of rivers, dangers from robbers, and he goes on. That's Paul's resume. So he says, if I have to boast, verse 30, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. So getting back to our text, Paul says, verse 1, he says, boasting is necessary. Or he says, I must go on boasting, even though it's not profitable. I'll go on to speak of visions and revelations of the Lord. You want to hear of these visions and revelations, these experiences that these false teachers have had? I'll tell you about my experiences. Paul continues his foolish boast, this time speaking of his own visions and revelations so that the Corinthians will see just how unprofitable such boasting is. By the way, we think of how unprofitable, and Paul uses the word unprofitable such boasting is, we should immediately think of what is profitable. The very same Apostle Paul wrote to, to Timothy, a young pastor, and he said, I'll tell you what's profitable. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. You want profitable? It's this. This is profitable. That's what Scripture says for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Don't seek an experience. Seek Scripture. God speaks through His Word. So with that in mind, let's jump into the first point in our sermon outline. The first point, having seen verse 1, that Paul says, I'm going to boast and I'm going to boast in these visions and experiences that I had because I want you to see how foolish it is. The first point is, number one, Paul's experience. Number one, Paul's experience. Look at verses 2-4. through four. Paul writes, I know a man... By the way, Paul is speaking of himself here. We'll, we'll explain that in a second. But he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. 
and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So here Paul reiterates an experience, a vision that he received 14 years previous. And some say that he, he had been persecuted, and that he had, he had been, they tried to murder Paul, and that when they did that, he, he died and he went to heaven and he came back and he had, he had this experience while he was in heaven. We don't know. Even Paul doesn't know. He says, I know a man who in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I just know this happened. And I'm going to tell you about it. And he speaks of himself in the third person. And we know that it's Paul, by the way, because in verse 7, he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. He says, because of the greatness of these revelations that I experienced, God gave me this thorn. Because he didn't want me to become prideful. He didn't want me to exalt myself. And in fact, Paul is so humble about this. He says, I know this man. He doesn't even want to refer to it as an experience that he, said, that he had. He says, this, this, this happened... It was this man, he's so humble, he's speaking in such a way that he doesn't even want to bring attention to himself. It wasn't him, it was him in Christ. He says, about such a man in Christ I'll boast, but I'm not going to boast about me. I want you to also note, just notice a few things. He writes in the third person, but also note that this experience took place 14 years ago. Remember, Paul came to Corinth, he preached the Gospel, He lived with them. He cared for them. He stayed with them a year and a half. He wrote 1 Corinthians. He wrote a second letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians. And now he's writing 2 Corinthians. And this is the first time this came up. In other words, Paul didn't really think up to this point it was all that necessary to talk about this experience. Paul talked about a lot of things. You think I'm long-winded. This is the guy who could preach for hours, and people were falling out of windows, people were falling asleep, people were, there, all kinds of things are happening as Paul's preaching. He's, he's teaching, depth of teaching. And this is the first time this comes up. He says, 14 years ago, this happened. First, first utterance we hear of it. Because he didn't see it as nearly as important as all the other things that he taught. Notice also that he says, in this experience, he was caught up, the word is raptured, he was raptured to the third heaven. He was taken up to the third heaven. And the third heaven is the, the, the abode of God, the place of paradise, he calls it. So in, a lot of people believe that, that the first heaven was the atmosphere, the second heaven was the place of the stars, and the third heaven was the place of, of paradise, was the abode of God. The point is, he was taken up to heaven to be with God. And he says he heard these things which man is not permitted to tell. Note that he doesn't go into detail. He doesn't say, here's what happened. This is how it happened. This, I, I, was, I was doing this, and this has happened. Here's what I saw, and here's what I heard. He says, these things aren't even permissible for me to even speak of. That's a far cry from the books that you get at the Christian bookstore today, where people write and they talk about how they died and went to heaven and came back. And these books appear on the New York Times bestseller list. Paul says, I experienced this, and God's forbidden me to even talk about it. It it was so inexpressible. Words don't even express it. That's it. That's all. I'm moving on. R. Kent Hughes argues that if this was written by one of the false teachers today, it would be a New York Times bestseller. Paul would write a book called Paul's Rapture Experience. Ten Secrets to Getting to Heaven and Experiencing God. Not the Apostle Paul. 
he says, this happened. Plainly, this is what happened. He goes into no more detail than he needs to. So having looked at Paul's experience, now I want you to see, number two, Paul's humility. Look at verses 5-6. through six. Paul's humility. He goes on to say, On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast. On behalf of the man in Christ who this happened to, yeah, I'll boast, but I'm not going to boast in myself, except for in regards to my own weakness. For I, if I do wish to boast, i.e. about these visions, if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish. He says, it wouldn't be foolish for me to boast about this, to say, look at what happened. But, he says, I refrain from this. It, it really did happen, so it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be foolish to boast, but I refrain from doing so, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Or as the New Living Translation says, beyond what they are able to see in my life or hear in my message. Paul says, I don't want them to credit me with being some great, miraculous, and wonderful guy because I had this experience, but instead because of what they see in my life and what they hear in my message. You see, Paul doesn't want the Corinthian believers to judge his ministry, or anyone else's ministry for that matter, by what one claims to have experienced. If I had come to Harmony Bible Church three years ago and said, I believe that God is calling me to be your pastor which I did say after much prayer and, and uh, seeking the Lord and counsel from others. I did say that, but if I had come three years ago and said, I believe that God is calling me to be your pastor and you should hire me because I was in this motorcycle accident, right? And, and I crashed my motorcycle and I died. They, they took me in an ambulance. They took me to, to the hospital and I died there on the cart. And when I died, I saw these marvelous things and I saw bright lights and God came to me and He spoke to me and He said this and such and I saw these wonderful things and it was, it was just amazing. If I had said that, that would be no reason to hire me as your pastor. Instead, Christian leaders should be examined by what can be seen and heard in their own lives and what can be seen and what can be heard in their messages. I pray that as we examine Christian leaders, it's not what they claim to have experienced, but the way they live their lives and the truth of the message that they proclaim. I asked Dan to teach Sunday school. Not because Dan said, you know, I'm a great guy and I went to heaven one time and it was really cool. But because Dan shows a knowledge of the Word of God and a life that reflects that knowledge by God's grace. So the key issue is not, do they claim to have experienced the power of God, but instead, is their speech and conduct by the grace of God consistent with biblical standards? That's the key issue. David Garland writes this, he says, Paul is reticent to speak about such things because he does not believe that recounting one's extraordinary mystical visions will do anything to build up the community. It only serves to build up the teller's ego and is therefore perilous. It certainly offers no proof of apostleship, History is littered with the tales of frauds who have been seduced or who have seduced and deluded followers by claiming to have some special divine mission from a divine vision. Consequently, he goes on and says, Paul rehearses this extraordinary episode in a way that only stresses how useless it is to prove anything about him. 
Just a side note, don't get this confused with John and the book of Revelation, which is written for our instruction. Not for, not for John's puffing himself up or for John to make himself look good or to recount uh, just his experience or to show that he would, to prove that he was an apostle, but is instead written for our instruction. So having seen, number one, Paul's experience, and number two, Paul's humility, let's consider our third point in our sermon outline. Number three, Satan's plan. Number three, Satan's plans. We have Paul's experience, Paul's humility, and Satan's plan. Paul goes on in verse 7 and says this, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, because of this happened to me, because they were, these revelations were so great, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. This thorn in the flesh, by the way, we don't know what it was. There's many speculations as to what this thorn in the flesh was. Was it a physical ailment? Was it somebody who followed him around and persecuted him everywhere he went? Somebody who caused trouble in his ministry? Was it his eyesight? We don't know. I'm inclined to believe it could have been his eyesight. In Galatians 4.15, he says, I bear witness that if possible, you, Galatians, you would have plucked your eyes out and given them to me. And so kind of a an odd thing to say. And then at the end of Galatians, he says, see with what large letters I'm writing. I write this in my own hand. Maybe he was losing his eyesight. But I'm telling you what, Paul was beaten. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. Everywhere he went, they were beating on Paul. Of course he had a thorn in the flesh. I can't believe he says, yeah, I have a thorn in the flesh. I'm surprised he doesn't say, I have hundreds of thorns in the flesh. I'm a cripple. I got back problems. My eyes don't work. Right? Paul says, I have this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what this thorn in the flesh is. And praise God that we don't. Because if we knew that it was his eyes, someone might say, my eyesight's fine. Right? Instead, we can relate to Paul because we go, I, I've got a thorn in the flesh. We all have thorns in the flesh. All the physical problems and struggles and trials in life. That's what Paul means by this. Something unpleasant. What I want you to see is that Satan had a plan for this thorn in Paul's flesh. His plan was to see it used to torment. The Greek word there means to cause injury. To torment Paul. It's the same Greek word that is used in Matthew 14.65 where we read this. Some began to spit at him. This is Jesus. They began to spit at Jesus and to blindfold him and to beat him. That's the same Greek word as torment right? in our text. They began to beat him, that is to cause him injury, with their fists. And to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. That just as Jesus was beaten with fists, Paul says, I have this thorn in my flesh. I have this thing so that Satan is going to use, and Satan's trying to use it to beat me. So Satan's desire was to use this thorn in Paul's flesh as a means to torment him, to beat him down, to cause him to despair. And I'm telling you, that's the story of life as we experience thorns in our flesh. Satan uses trials and suffering and he wants to beat us down. He wants us to despair. But having seen Satan's plan, now let's consider number four, God's purpose. Number four, God's purpose. Look at verses 8-10 through 10 with me. Notice first of all that Paul says, before we get there, that Paul says that the thorn in the flesh was given to him to keep him from exalting himself. 
And this clearly indicates that while Satan has plans for this thorn in the flesh, so also does God. He says, I was given this thorn in the flesh. Satan wanted to use it to torment me, but I was also given it. It was also given to me, i.e. by God, to keep me from exalting myself. Because nothing happens outside of the sovereignty of God. For an example of that, read the book of Job. Satan says, I, I, I really want to torture Job. I, I, this servant of yours, let me at him. And God says, okay, but here's your leash. You can go just so far. Nothing happens outside of the sovereign hand of God. You've got cancer. God's not surprised at that. You've got bad, broken relationships in your life. God's not surprised at that. You've got people who want to persecute you at work. God's not surprised by that. And Satan's desire was very much for Paul to exalt himself. That's how we know, one of the reasons we know God's hand is in this. He says, it was given to me so that I wouldn't exalt myself. Satan's desire is for us to exalt ourselves. The word exalt appears in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3-4. through It says this. It's the only time this exact word appears elsewhere in Scripture. And it says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will, come not, for it will not come unless apostasy comes first. And then... The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself. He glories himself. He lifts himself up above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He puts himself in a position over and above God. That is what Satan does, and that is what he wants you to do in your life as well. He wants you to exalt yourself, to lift yourself up over and above God. Satan wanted that for Paul, both in the vision given him. He gave him this, God gave him this vision, and Satan whispered in Paul's ear, and he said, wow, you're pretty special. You were taken to heaven. You ought to exalt yourself. And he wanted him to exalt himself, even in the thorn in the flesh. He wanted Paul to cry out, Why? Why me? And not just why me, for we can cry out why me. We should cry out why me, because God loves us and He loves to answer us. But the wrong was that He wanted Paul to also say, why me? I don't deserve this. You see, pride is our enemy. And pride is the tool that our enemy, Satan, uses to lure us away from God. And pride says, look at me, I received this vision. I'm pretty. I'm something special. I have these credentials. I have these experiences. The pride also says, when trials come our way, God, I don't deserve this. Why me, God? But God's purpose was far different from Satan's. It was to keep him from exalting himself. That's why in verses 8-10, through he writes this. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. I wanted this thorn to leave me. And He has said to me this. This is God's response. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. First, a couple of words of warning. Number one, 
Paul's contentment is not just in suffering, but instead suffering for Christ's sake. This is not just limited to persecutions either, but instead, it's suffering of all sorts, but it does not include suffering that is a result of sin. Sometimes we suffer because we, we're the recipients of the consequences of our own actions. He's not talking about that. He's talking about suffering that's not a result of our own actions, but instead suffering that happens in our lives because we live in a fallen world and because God has purposes in those sufferings. Not just suffering for the sake of suffering either. R. Kent Hughes writes this. He says, There's no value in the endurance of hardships and indignities themselves. There's no virtue in suffering. Everything turns on the phrase for the sake of Christ. Only a fanatic would find contentment in self-inflicted suffering and miseries. But a Christian will find special contentment in suffering endured for the sake of Christ. There's contentment in that. Secondly, I want you to also notice that Paul asked for the thorn to be removed. He asked for healing. Paul says, I prayed three times. And I think there's a clear, uh, maybe allusion to the Garden of Gethsemane. I can't say that Paul is saying, that, that I don't want to make a connection that's not there, but I think as Paul wrote, I prayed three times, he naturally would have thought of his Lord Jesus Christ, who prayed, remove this cup from me, and prayed three times, and God said no. And in the same way, Paul received the same answer from God. No, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to remove it. But he prayed, and he prayed earnestly to have it removed. This is something that we need to grow in as a church. That when suffering comes our way, when trials come our way, we should pray and ask God to remove them and pray with believing hearts. Some time ago, I, some of you know I, I have colitis. In a prayer meeting, I said to Mark and Bill, and others, I said, I need you to pray over me. Because uh, I've been in remission for a long time, and I need you to pray over me. Before I, go to a, before I go to a doctor, before all these other things, I want to pray and ask the Lord to heal me. James 5 says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is any, anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, And if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and by implication, and pray. Seek God's healing. Seek God to remove this thorn that exists in your life. So don't hear me say we shouldn't pray for healing when I say that God uses these sufferings and trials in our lives and that God has purposes in them. Paul said, I prayed, and I asked God to remove it, and I prayed three times, and God said no. And then when God said no, then I was content and said, okay, I see that you have purposes in this. I see that you have a purpose in this. So getting back to God's purpose in our suffering and in our trials, which we've seen is to keep us from exalting ourselves, from lifting ourselves up, Paul goes on and says, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The word dwell means to take up residence. He says, this, these trials come, they've come into my life, and, and it, this thorn in my flesh it has come to keep me from exalting myself so that the power of Christ may dwell, may take up residence in me. Paul says, I will rather boast about my weakness rather than exalt myself 
so that the power of Christ may take up residence in me. You see, Christ lives in those who are weak. That's why James 4, just ahead of where we just read, just before where we just read, James 4, he says, Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which, has, which He has made to dwell in us. The Spirit's meant to dwell in us. The Spirit's power is meant to be active in us. And then He goes on and talks about God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. And therefore, we're called to humble ourselves in the presence of the Lord. And He's the one who will lift us up. We don't lift ourselves up. He lifts us up. In other words, it is in humility and weakness that we become recipients of God's grace. And He lifts us up and He grows us and He makes us more like Jesus. He dwells in us in our weakness. And that's God's plan for your life, for your trials, to make you more like Christ. So when you say, why? The answer is here. To make you more like Jesus so that He will dwell in you. So that His abode is in you. His power is in you day by day. And you know what? As I was thinking this through, I thought, you know, Paul might have been able to, to experience two, three, four more missionary journeys if it wasn't for this thorn in his flesh. Paul might have been able to sleep less and preach more. But you know what? God had purposes even in this thorn in the flesh. And it was not just so that he could minister to more people, but instead that Paul could be made more like Jesus. God will accomplish what He will accomplish as we, seek, as we seek Him and as we minister. But He does that through us first becoming like Jesus. So when you say, why is this happening to me? I'm going to say, first, it's to make you more like Jesus. Before all the reaching other people and being used for ministry and all those other things. First and foremost, He is relentless in making you more like Christ. That's why Romans 8.28, we love Romans 8.28. We love to quote that verse. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, He's going to make all things good in my life. And we never read on. Verse 29, it says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. You, know, you want to know what good is? Good is becoming like Jesus. He works all things together for good, and that good is to make you more like Jesus. Jesus was perfectly patient. So you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring trials in your life that cause you to grow in patience. Jesus perfectly loved his enemies. So you know what God's going to do? He's going to bring trials in your life that cause you to struggle and to grow in loving your enemies. He goes on in Romans 8, 28 and 29. And in verse 30, he says, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, he's going to accomplish his work. He will do it. He will. He will. He will. He is relentless in making you more like Jesus. And then Paul says, verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? No one. That's the answer. No one. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us, how will He not freely, also with Him freely, give us all things? He will accomplish His work in your life. And that's not necessarily these things that He gives you are not necessarily riches. Not the prosperity gospel. Not a life of ease. But something far better. He's going to make you more like Jesus. So when you say, why is my marriage difficult to make you more like Jesus? 
Why do I have diabetes? To make you more like Jesus. Why is my work so difficult? To make you more like Jesus. Why did I lose my job? To make you more like Jesus. Why is my neighbor the way he is? To make you more like Jesus. To make you more like Him. And so that His power, so that He may take up residence in you. And you may be conformed to His likeness. Just lastly, that's why James 1. James says in James 1, verses 2-4, through he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Not knowing that God's going to work out some miraculous thing and the whole world's going to come to Jesus. and all the. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance, let it have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete. That's mature and lacking in nothing. So that you may be more like Jesus day by day by day. And as that happens, then I assure you, it's only after that that God uses us in ministry. It's not by lifting ourselves up, but instead by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So in review... Paul shares his experience. So that was taken up to heaven. But then he shares his humility. And humbly he says, yet I will not exalt myself. He shares Satan's plan that Satan's, Satan desires to use the trials and this thorn that God has placed in his flesh. Satan's desire is to use it to torment him, but God has purpose in these trials and it's to make him more like Jesus day by day. So the question is, so how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, how do we specifically apply all of this to our lives? Well, we need to not boast in our credentials or in our accomplishments or in our experiences. Far be it from us to boast in those things. We need to seek to not be credited with more than what can be seen in our lives and heard in our message. I've said many times that I want 1 Corinthians to be, uh, to be put on my tombstone. Here lies a man who received from the Lord. Here's a man who turned, repented, and believed. Right? That ultimately, at the end of my life, I just want to be known for one who followed Jesus. I don't want to be credited with more than what can be seen in my life and heard in my message. I want to see that it's not me who's exalted. And our job is to make sure that we see that it's not us who are exalted, but instead Christ who is exalted in us. So we boast not in our credentials, but instead we boast in Christ and His work in and through us. And secondly, we need to earnestly pray for, we need to pray in the faith for God to remove our thorns in the flesh. Why would we not? Earnestly pray that God would heal you. Earnestly pray that God would remove these thorns in the flesh. Remove the difficulties from your marriage. Yes, pray, please. But know that often, God works those miracles through us in the the working out of these things so that He may be glorified and His power is made perfect in our weakness. So thirdly, we need to be well content with suffering for Christ's sake so that Christ may take up residence in us and we may be conformed to His likeness. And this applies to both us as individuals and us as a church. 
And I say this with some sense of fear and trembling. I stood in a pulpit four years ago. Yeah, four years ago. And I said, I pray that the Lord would bring whatever He needs to bring into my life to make me more like Jesus. Whatever that is, I hold nothing back. I want whatever that may be. And I'll tell you, I don't know as though I was prepared for the answer. I don't know I was pre- as though I was pre- I know I wasn't prepared for the trials and the suffering that God brought into my life to make me more like Jesus and conform me to the image of His Son. But you know what? I will pray that prayer today and I will encourage you to pray the same thing both as individuals and as a church. God, bring whatever you need to bring into our lives to make us more like Christ. A thousand years from now, I don't want to say I, live a, I lived a life of ease. I want to say... I was conformed to the image of Christ. I became more like Him day by day by His grace. So let's pray and let's be well content in suffering for Christ's sake so that He may conform us to His likeness. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace, Your mercy. Thank You for an opportunity that we have to reflect on Your Word, to reflect on who You are and who we are in You. God, I pray that we would not boast in our credentials, our accomplishments, or our experiences, but instead of exalting ourselves, we would exalt Your Son, Jesus Christ, the One who lived a perfect life, the One who died on the cross for our sins, the One who was raised from the dead, defeating death and sin so that we might live in You and in Him. God, I pray that You would remove the thorns in our flesh. God, that You would remove the trials and the sufferings that we face. And God, I pray that we would pray that earnestly. Pray that believing. But God, that if You answer us and say no, that we would be well content with whatever comes our way so that we may be more like Your Son, Jesus. And God, I pray and ask that You'd work all things together for that end. I praise You for Your promise that that is indeed what You are doing and will do. I praise You that You are faithful and true to Your Word. God, that You have promised that the the work that You began in us, that You will carry it through to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in His name. Amen.